I invite you to stand as we uh, come to our scripture lesson this morning. Uh, again, coming uh, from Second Chronicles, uh, chapter twenty, uh, verses five through twelve. Again, as we turn to God's word this morning, we do so because we believe that this is the very word of the living and the true God. Again, from Second Chronicles, chapter twenty, uh, beginning at verse five. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever. And they dwell in it, and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence. For your name is in this temple. And cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now here are the people of Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is a coming against us, nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we do come to this word on this day that you have made, dear God, may you cause this word to rest in our hearts. And may we again learn from your word as we live the life of faith. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now, I know for some of us uh, that history uh, was a pretty exciting class in school. Now, I know for some of us that history was not particularly an exciting class uh, for us to take in school. Now, some of us have different reasons for why history was exciting. Now, I'm sure this is probably true for most of y'all, but... When I was in high school, history meant a football coach was teaching your class. And I don't know about your high school, but that usually meant that that was a class that you could kind of take off. uh, Because most certainly the coach uh, was taking that class off. And so it was kind of an easy A uh, in uh, my high school. And it may have been at your high school as well. But, you know, for some of us, there was a general interest in learning about history and learning about what had happened before we were born. It's one of the most important lessons, I think, that we can teach uh, children and a lesson that adults need to be reminded of every now and then. That the world wasn't created the day you were born. That everything we hear about before our entrance into the world is not kind of made up 
in order to uh, design uh, some purpose. But that when we go, for instance, a mile and a half up the road and make a left-hand turn and go about two miles back out that road and see the signs for the Kings Mountain National you know, a Park out there, that, that's not just kind of made up, right? That there was an actual battle over there. And that battle had an actual real effect on our being here today. You know, of course, they probably play it up a little bit out there, but... Uh, that's kind of their job, I guess. But, you know, Kings Mountain was a pivotal battle in changing the trajectory of the revolution. And, you know, not to kind of toot my own family's horn, but I found out recently that my whatever great-grandfather uh, happened to actually be at the Battle of Kings Mountain. And I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, my ancestor may have known some of your ancestors. Uh, back in the 1700s. And when we hear about stuff like that, right, it can be kind of, well, why does it matter if my ancestor was here 200 some odd years ago? Why does it matter if there's a mountain over there that people shot at each other at? You know, what effect does that have on my life? Well, again, when we think about our being here today, right, we're here today because of that battle, right? We're here today in the United States because of that battle. Right? We have certain freedoms to worship the Lord God because of that battle. Now when we, we think about that, you know, one of the things we try to teach children about is that they shouldn't take things like that for granted. And one of the reasons we teach children about that is because that's not true of every nation under heaven. And so there needs to be a certain humility about the blessings of growing up in a nation that has you know, freedom of speech and freedom of religion and the likewise. And when we come and, and see in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 this morning, you know, we see a man, Jehoshaphat, who is gathered together in the assembly of the Lord with the people of Judah and Jerusalem, and he's there for a purpose. He's there... To prepare the nation for battle. He's there to prepare the nation for a military conflict that in the eyes of the flesh, he knows that they have no ability to win. And they are standing here in the face of overwhelming odds. And it's even, uh, and if you, you go back and you, you look at, at the history of this era, you know, in the days in which Jehoshaphat lived, it was not just a, a, a kind of numbers advantage, uh, but the nation surrounding Judah had a military technology advantage uh, versus the people of Judah. Because you remember something about the nation of Judah at this time. Judah was kind of a poor backwater nation. Right? They had lost the wealth of the Solomon era. Right? They had lost all of the benefits of the United Kingdom. And they were definitely weaker than Ahab and the Northern Kingdom. Now again, one of the things that we're supposed to pick up in the midst of this history is not, well, here's just some more boring facts about stuff that happened a long time ago. Right? We're supposed to pick up something about the nature of our own place in the world today. And when we look out 
to the world around us, you know, what do we see on a daily basis? Right? We see the fact that we are, quote-unquote, weaker than the culture around us. Right? The church does not have access to the kind of media that the world does. Right? I mean, if you turn on the television at any time of the day, what is the kind of worldview, what is the message being proclaimed, you know, whether it be from children's TV or from the news or from, quote-unquote, adult TV? Right? Everything that is being promulgated through those media streams is against what God has declared to be holy in His Word. And you, you think about that, and there, there's a certain, you know, idle meat character to it. You know, certain Romans 14, if we are able to take in certain kinds of entertainment, then that's lawful for us. But it's something that we have to think about. The fact that the world is geared against what it is we're trying to teach not only our children, but what we're trying to teach ourselves. And Jehoshaphat, again, is thinking about this as he's proclaiming this message to the nation of Judah. You know, we are kind of alone in this battle. The odds are overwhelmingly against us. But where, again, did, Jeho did Jehoshaphat go Again, not only to find kind of spiritual comfort, but where does he go to remind the nation that they have nothing to fear but fear itself? Right? Why should they not be concerned about these nations that are bearing down upon them to wipe them off the face of the earth? Remember where Jehoshaphat goes. He says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kings of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? Well, think about what he's saying here. How long is forever? Well, you know, forever is not five minutes, right? Forever is not as long as he feels like it, right? Forever means forever. This is, again, where Jehoshaphat is going to prepare the people for this battle that they are facing. That they have nothing to fear from uh, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and those of Mount Seir. And why is that? Because remember what God had promised to his friend Abraham. Remember what God had done for Moses and the people in the wilderness. Remember what God had done for the people in the days of Joshua. You, you think of that first battle. You know, last week we talked about the battle of Ai. And of course before the battle of Ai we had the battle of Jericho. And we have kind of a similar situation, right? Jericho... You know, as we all know uh, from our uh, time as children, right? It had big walls, right? And, and what did God tell the Israelites to do? Did He tell them to go build a big siege engine and develop gunpowder and blow up the walls, right? Is, is that how that worked? No, right? God told the people to walk around the city blowing trumpets. Now again, think about how that may, must have looked to the people of Jericho. 
As they're on the walls, like with their with, with, with their you know bows and arrows and stuff, and they're looking out, and here are these people walking around the city blowing trumpets. And you, you can imagine the epithets that were probably being thrown out from the top of the walls, You're making fun of these silly people doing these silly things. Of course, we know what happens, right? We know that after they go around, the walls come a tumbling down. Right? The walls, as they come tumbling down, the people of God are given the victory over the people of Jericho. And how does that happen? Right? Does it happen because you know, God knew something about uh, sound waves? Right? And He knew that you know, if they blew sound waves loud enough that it would crack the walls and they would fall down. Right? Is that how that worked? Well, no. Of course, that's not how it worked. Right? But that's, again, sometimes the world tries to make sense of things in the Bible and it will try to use these things to, to kind of deny the miraculous power of the living God. And we trust what God's Word tells us about these events. Right? These walls fell down because God made them fall down. And why did they fall down? Because God told Israel that they would fall down. You know, it's the same as the Red Sea. And of course, he, he mentions uh, this in the midst of the things, right? In Egypt, as they come up to the Red Sea, they're standing there. They have no weapons. They're outnumbered. They have nowhere to turn. And what does God tell Moses? We went over this in Bible study last week. You know, Moses is standing there and he's holding this rod, right? And you remember that story. What had God done with that rod? Right? God had turned it into a serpent. Uh, God had had Moses lift it up and, 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 and caused the waters to turn to blood. And God had done other things with this rod. And God looks at Moses and says, Hey, what do you got in your right hand? And you can kind of see Moses look and he looks at the rod and, and God kind of asks him rhetorical questions there. And he says, um, Think for a second here, Moses. Uh, what have I given you the ability to do? Right? To save your people. And what have I told you I'm going to do? I'm going to bring you into the land of promise. And so God tells Moses to raise, his, raise it up. And what happens? Right? The sea parts. Right? And, and we talked about this. It's, it's not just the parting of the sea that's a miracle. But it's also the causing of the ground to be dry. That's part of that miracle. And again, we see as God allows the people to move to the other side, as soon as Pharaoh's army comes, what happens? Right? The water comes a tumbling down. Right? The water flows and destroys the army of Pharaoh, and the people of God are saved. Now again, Josaphat is interested in bringing up these historical events so that the people would be reminded of why it is they have nothing to fear from this army. You notice something else that Josephat says. He also uh, does this in the midst of the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord. Before the new court. Right? Now think about the location. You know, what, what is the location of this message of God's protective sovereignty? Why does it matter where it is that this takes place? Again, remember, in the Old Covenant, where is God present? Right? God is present. He lives in the Holy of Holies in the temple. 
And being as they are in the assembly here in the house of the Lord, right? Josephat is reminding them of the presence of the Lord God. Again, this is something we, we, we see in stark contrast to the false gods of the nations, most especially in the scene at Mount Carmel. You remember there, as Elijah is with uh, the uh, false priests of Baal, you remember how uh, Elijah kind of mocks the priests of Baal, right? Remember what do they, what do, they do? Right? They, they make this deal, they make this um, you know, kind of scene where they're supposed to call fire out from heaven. Right? And the priests of Baal, what are they doing? They're chanting, they're dancing, they're jumping around, doing all kinds of things. And then they start cutting themselves. And they start dancing some more, and they start yelling, and they start screaming, and they start doing all these things. And, and, and what does he say? He says, well, maybe your gods are far off. Right? Maybe Baal is sleeping. Right? Maybe Baal is otherwise occupied. Right? And what is he saying there about the Lord God of Israel? Right? He's saying that the Lord God of Israel is ever present with his people. Right? He's saying that the Lord our God is different from the gods of the nations, primarily because he exists and they don't. And so when, when, when Elijah calls out for fire from heaven, what happens? Well, the fire comes down, it takes care of everything, and it kills all of the priests, and then they go about killing the rest of them. You know, the judgment of God is coming down upon uh, these false uh, priests uh, for the fact, again, that God has heard the cries of His people, and He has answered their prayers, and He has shown His power once again to the nations. And this, again, is what Jehoshaphat is calling upon the people to remember. And as they see these armies, as they see uh, these troubles, as they see these trials, as they see all of these things with their eyes, He wants them to remember what is true in their heart. What's true in their knowledge of the Lord our God. And there's a a somewhat similar situation that happens uh, with the army of Sennacherib. Remember how uh, the prophet is standing there looking out at the armies and and the the servant comes up and the servant is all worried about everything. And what does the prophet ask God? He asks God to open the the servant's eyes. And God opens the servant's eyes and what does the the servant see? He sees the chariots of the angels surrounding the armies. And what is that supposed to do? Right? It's supposed to give comfort to these, uh, this servant primarily, and to us, the reminder that even though we may not be able to see with the fleshly eyes these things, the reality is, is that the Lord our God not only is ever present, but the Lord our God is protecting us. And again, this is supposed to be a great comfort And a great peace unto the heart of believers. Again, think about something else that Jehoshaphat does. Again, he's not grounding this merely because this is the way it's supposed to be. Right? Well, we're Israelites. Of course God's supposed to protect us. Right? That's what the Pharisees thought. Right? They thought, well, since we're fleshly related to Abraham, then everything that God has done is because we're special. Right? 
We have the mark of Abram on us. And so that means all these Gentiles, they don't really need to hear all these things, right? And and we're just kind of better than everyone. Notice again where, uh, in the midst of these things, Jehoshaphat reminds the people of the way in which they got to be in this situation to begin with. Again, we hear there, in verse 8, And they dwell in it, and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence. For your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Again, this language here of saving is not just talking about the physical action of being saved from the armies that are surrounding them. Again, what is their faith built on? Their faith is built on the fact that God had redeemed them from the land of slavery. Their faith is built on the fact that God had called Abram out of the land of Chaldees. And we think back to both of these events... What had Israel done, either in Abram or in Egypt, to deserve the redemption of the Lord? Again, Abram had done nothing. Right? In fact, Abram had done everything except call out on the name of the Lord. But the Lord comes to him and calls him to be the father of many nations. And when we think about our own salvation, we think of our redemption in Jesus Christ... What is the foundation of our faith? Right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Right? And when we think about the fact that our foundation is built on who Jesus is, not who we are, right? Because if our faith was built on us, what hope would we have? Right? Because when we look inside ourselves, what do we see? Right? We see our transgressions. Right? We see our weaknesses. We see the fact uh, that we have fallen short of the glory of God. We see the fact that we're probably our own worst enemies. That we're our own worst counselors. And what we see here in the midst of this passage, again, is Jehoshaphat reminding Israel and reminding us of what we read there at the end. For we do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Right? This is the testimony of faith. This testimony that we are emptying ourselves and placing all of our hope and our peace upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? If we, we, we try to kind of have it both ways, right? live in light of our own wisdom and have Jesus Christ too, well, who's going to win that battle? Right? And every time we see this in the Scriptures where somebody tries to have their cake and eat it too, where they, they try to have these things together, right? the flesh always wins out. Right? We, we talked about that in Sabbath school this morning uh, with the parable of the sower. Right? And Jesus thankfully explains to us what He means there. And you remember there in the explanation you know, of the seed that falls in the thorny ground, right? Jesus says in verse 22 there that as it comes up, it's strangled, it's choked by the desires of the flesh, right? It's choked by the things of this world. You know, the first opportunity when faith faces trial, it turns back unto itself, 
rather than turning unto the Lord. And, and what is the reasoning Jesus gives for that? Right? Because where is its heart? Right? Its heart is in the world. Its faith is in the things of this world. Its faith is in the material things of this world. And one, one of the things we, we're meant to think of there is later on is of the rich young ruler. Right? Remember how he, he comes to hear Jesus and Jesus is talking to him and he tells Jesus about how great of a person he is, how he follows all of the commandments, right? And Jesus challenges him. And Jesus uh, tells him there to give up all of his possessions and come and follow me. And we hear what happens, right? We hear that he goes away sorrowful. Now, why does he go away sorrowful? He goes away sorrowful because he doesn't want to give up his stuff. Right? He doesn't want to give up uh, those things uh, that his heart is dwelling on. Right? Because where is his hope? Right? His hope is in these worldly possessions. His hope is in riches. His hope is in this world. And of course, what happens? And not to that rich young ruler, but to another one. In Luke chapter 16. Right? He goes and dies. Right? You know, he dies with all kinds of money in a big house. And where does he end up? Right? He ends up in hell. And it's interesting there in Luke 16. What is his first request? Is his first request, hey Abraham, get me out of here. No, his first request is, hey, that's a water for my tongue. Right? And when we hear that and we think, well, maybe that's not a bad request, right? I mean, hell's hot, right? Yeah, I mean, some water on the tongue would feel good. But is that the real problem that he has? That his tongue's hot? No, the real problem that he has is he's in rebellion against the Lord our God. And even in hell, he doesn't want to give that up. Right? He's still holding on to himself. He's holding on to his riches. He's holding on to who he is. And of course, you remember later on in that story, after uh, he is saying these things, he says, hey, um, why don't you go tell my brothers uh, about this? You know, I mean, that's probably a good idea, right? So his brothers don't end up there. And, and what, is, what is the response? They have Moses and the prophets. And what's the point of that? The point of that is, it's because in the Old Testament, we have a testimony of the salvation promised to us in Jesus Christ. Right? In the Old Testament, we have page after page which reminds us that we are dead in sin, that we have no hope in ourselves, and that our only hope is in the redemption offered by Jehovah. And this again is why Jehoshaphat is calling upon the people there at the beginning to remind themselves of the Lord God of our fathers. Are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And do we believe this? Do we believe that God is the ruler over the nations? Well, if we live as if Christ isn't even Lord over us, how can we believe that Christ is Lord over the nations? Right? If we're not willing to submit ourselves uh, to Jesus Christ as Lord, how can we expect uh, the United States to do so? Right? If we're not willing to order our lives in accordance with the wisdom of God, then it's kind of hypocritical of us to go out and tell everybody else to do it. And of course, that's really what the Pharisees were all about. 
Right? They were all about telling everybody else what to do. But what does Jesus call them in Matthew 23? He calls them white sepulchers. And what's a white sepulcher? Right? A sepulcher is a place that's full of dead man's bones. But on the outside, it looks pretty. Right? It's all whitewashed and it's all clean and everything. But what good does it do a man to be buried in a big tomb? It doesn't make a hill's bit of difference whether you're buried in an unknown place in the ground or if you're buried in the world's largest mausoleum. You know, God on the judgment day is not going to look and say, well, wow, somebody must have really liked you and built you a big house. I think you're pretty cool. Let's come on into heaven. Right? That's not how God is going to work. Right? What do we see there in Matthew 25? Right? Who are those who come into the kingdom? Those who have done the will of my Father, right? Who have clothed the naked, who have fed the hungry, who have, who have taken care of the least of these. And again, this is why it's also important to remember something about uh, the place again, of where this is going on. Again, in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, the house of the Lord, again, they have gathered together in order to seek the Lord's favor. Right? They have gathered together in the house of the Lord to do this. Now again, remember something Jesus tells the, the, the young woman in John chapter 4. Right? Remember she asked, well, in the new covenant, where are we going to worship? Worship here in Samaria? Or are we going to worship in Jerusalem? And what did Jesus tell her? Right? That we are going to worship the Lord God, not in Jerusalem, not in Samaria, we're going to worship wherever the people of God are gathered together in spirit and in truth. That's one of the things that's vital for us to remember. Again, that's one of the reasons why we are here at this very moment on this very day. And not only are we following the fourth commandment in gathering together on the Lord's day, but we are gathering together for this purpose of being reminded of who we are in Jesus Christ. Being reminded of what God has done, not only for us, but what God has done for the generations before us. And what God will do for the generations to come. And it's one of the reasons, again, why it's important for us to read Moses and the prophets. Right? It's one of the reasons why it's important for us to read the epistles of Paul, to read the Gospels, to read the book of Revelation. Right? Because they're a testimony to us of who our God is, what our God has done, and what our God will do in the future. Right? Because we go from this place out into a world that has denied Christ and Him crucified. Right? We go out into a world that is going to tell us constantly over and over that our God is not real. That our God has no power. That our God is foolish. And what is the answer we are to give to the world? Exactly what we see Jehoshaphat say here. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you? Again, do we believe that? Do we live in that way? Do we confess our faith to the world around us in that way? Or, or do we kind of try to, you know, try to hide our faith when we're out outside of these walls? 
Are are, are we embarrassed sometimes that we confess Jesus as Christ? I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone here of that. But the reality of the fact is, is the testimony of Scripture is clear unto us. The the way in which we show our faith to the world is how the world is going to learn of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, that's one of the things that God had commanded Israel to do uh, back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He had told them to be a light to the nations around. That the nations might look at Israel and say, the God of Israel is wonderful. The God of Israel is wise. The God of Israel is powerful. Look at the effect that it's having on the tribes over there in uh, the Middle East. But what what did the nations learn from Israel? They learned from Israel that it doesn't matter if you worship Jehovah. It doesn't matter if you worship Jehovah and Baal. Right? As long as you get circumcised. Right? That's all that matters. Right? As long as you keep kosher. Right? Again, this reminder of what we have in 2 Chronicles 20 as we close this morning again is of humbling ourselves before the Lord God. Of humbling ourselves before the Lord God not only in remembrance of His power and of His might and of His assurance to us that He is sovereign over all things and that He is more powerful than all the enemies that we face. But then most of all, again, That God has given us this land in which to dwell. Because he was a friend to our father Abraham. And he has given us this land to dwell by his grace and by his mercy. And by the love that he has for us and the sending of his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. Shall have everlasting life. Again as we close this morning. Again let us think. Again, not only of our place in the kingdom, but let us go from this place in the comfort, in the knowledge of who our God is. And our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That our God does not change. His Word does not change. And His promises do not change. And we will rest in this mercy for all of eternity. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we